This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley. Recorded by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, during July and August 2006. Chapter 31 How to Understand International Finance. It is high time that someone came out with a clear statement of the international financial situation. For weeks and weeks, officials have been rushing about holding conferences and councils and having their pictures taken going up and down the steps of buildings. Then, after each conference, the newspapers have printed a lot of figures showing the latest returns on how much Germany owes the bank. And none of it means anything. Now, there is a certain principle which has to be followed in all financial discussions involving sums over $100. There is probably not more than $100 in actual cash in circulation today. That is, if you were to call in all the bills and silver and gold in the country at noon tomorrow and pile them up on the table, you would find that you had just about $100, with perhaps several Canadian pennies and a few peppermint lifesavers. All the rest of the money you hear about doesn't exist. It is conversation money. When you hear of a transaction involving $50 million, it means that one firm wrote $50 million on a piece of paper and gave it to another firm. And the other firm took it home and said, Look, Mama, I got $50 million. But when Mama asked for a dollar and a quarter out of it to pay the man who washed the windows, the answer probably was that the firm hadn't got more than 70 cents in cash. This is the principle of finance. So long as you can pronounce any number above a thousand, you have got that much money. You can't work this scheme with the shoe store man or the restaurant owner, but it goes big on Wall Street or in international financial circles. This much understood, we see that when the Allies demand 132 billion gold marks from Germany, they know very well that nobody in Germany has ever seen 132 billion gold marks, and never will. A more surprised and disappointed lot of boys you couldn't ask to see than the Supreme Financial Council would be if Germany were actually to send them a money order for the full amount demanded. What they mean is that, taken all in all, Germany owes the world 132 billion gold marks, plus carfare. This includes everything, breakage, meals, sent to the room, goodwill, everything. Now it is understood that if they really meant this, Germany couldn't even draw cards. So the principle on which the thing is figured out is as follows. Watch this closely. There's a trick in it. You put down a lot of figures, like this. Any figures will do, so long as you can't read them quickly. 132 billion gold marks. 33 billion dollars on a current value basis. 21 billion dollars on reparation accounts, plus 12.5% yearly tax on German exports. 11 billion goldfish. $1.35 amusement tax. 
866,000 miles, diameter of the sun, 2 billion, 27 billion, 31 billion. Then you add them together and subtract the number you first thought of. This leaves 11. And the card you hold in your hand is the seven of diamonds. Am I right? Chapter 32 "'Twas the night before summer, an imaginary watch night with the weatherman. It was eleven o'clock on the night of June 20th. We were seated in the office of the Weather Bureau on the twenty-ninth floor of the Whitehall Building, the weatherman and I, and we were waiting for summer to come. It was officially due on June 21st. We had the almanac's word for it, and years and years of precedent. But still, the weatherman was skeptical. It had been a hard spring for the weatherman. Day after day he had been forced to run a signed statement in the daily papers to the effect that sometime during that day there would probably be showers. And day after day, with a ghastly consistency, his prophecy had come true. People had come to dislike him personally. Old jokes about him were brought out and oiled and given a trial spin down the road apiece before appearing in funny columns and vaudeville skits, and the sporting writers, frenzied by the task of filling their space with nothing but tables of batting averages, had become positively libelous. And now summer was at hand, and with it the promise of the sun. The weatherman nibbled at his thumbnail. The clock on the wall said 11.15. It just couldn't go back on us now, he said plaintively, when it means so much to us. It always has come on the 21st. There was not much that I could say. I didn't want to hold out any false hope, for I am a child in arms in matters of astronomy, or whatever it is that makes weather. I often remember hearing my father tell, I ventured, how every year on the 21st of June, summer always used to come, rain or shine, until they came to look for it on that date, and to count from then as the beginning of the season. It seemed as if... I know, he interrupted, but there have been so many upsetting things during the past twelve months. We can't check up this year by any other years. All we can do is wait and see... A gust of wind from Jersey ran along the side of the building, shaking at the windows. The weatherman shuddered and looked out of the corner of his eye at the anemometer register, which stood on a table in the middle of the room. It indicated whatever anemometers do indicate when they want to register bad news. I considerately looked out at the window. "'You've no idea,' he said at last, in a low voice, of how this last rainy spell has affected my home life. For the first two or three days, although I got dark looks from slight acquaintances, there was always a cheery welcome waiting for me when I got home, and the little woman would say, Never mind, Ray. It will soon be pleasant, and we all know that it's not your fault anyway. But then... After a week had passed, and there had been nothing but rain and showers and rain, I began to notice a change. When I would swing in at the gate, 
she would meet me and say in a faraway voice, Well, what is it for tomorrow? And I would have to say, Probably cloudy, with occasional showers and light easterly gales, at which she would turn away and bite her lip, and once I thought I saw her eyelashes wet. Then one night the break came. It had started out to be a perfect day, just such as one reads about, but along about noon it began to cloud over, and soon the rain poured down in rain gauges full. I was all discouraged, and as I wrote out the forecast for the papers, rain tomorrow and Friday, I felt like giving the whole thing up and going back to Vermont to live. When I got home, Alice was there with her things on, waiting for me. "'You needn't tell me what it's going to be tomorrow,' she sobbed. "'I know. Everyone knows. The whole world knows. I used to think that it wasn't your fault, but when the children come home from school crying because they have been plagued for being the weatherman's children—' When every time I go out, I know that the neighbors are talking behind my back and saying, How does she stand it? When every paper I read, every bulletin I see, stares me in the face with great letters saying, Weatherman predicts more rain, or lynch the weatherman and let the baseball season go on, then I think it is time for us to come to an understanding. I am going over to Mother's until you can do better. The weatherman got up and went to the window. Out there, over the battery, there was a spot casting a sickly glow through the cloud banks which filled the sky. That's the moon up there behind the fog, he said, and laughed a bitter cackle. It was now 11.45. The thermograph was writing busily in red ink on the little diagrammed cuff provided for that purpose, writing all about the temperature. The weatherman inspected the fine, jagged line as it leaked out of the pen on the chart. Then he walked over to the window again and stood looking out over the bay. "'You'd think that people would have a little gratitude,' he said in a low voice." and not hit a man who has done so much for them. If it weren't for me, where would the art of American conversation be today? If there were no weather to talk about, how could there be any dinner parties or church sociables or sidewalk chats? All I have to do is put out a real scorcher or a continued cold snap, and I can drive off the boards the biggest news story that was ever launched, or draw the teeth out of the most delicate international situation. I have saved more reputations and social functions than any other influence in American life. Yet here, when the Home Office sends me a rummy lot of weather, over which I have no control, everybody jumps on me. He pulled savagely at the window shade, and pressed his nose against the pane in silence for a while. There was no sound but the ticking of the anemometer and the steady scratching of the thermograph. 
I looked at the clock. 11.47. Suddenly the telegraph over in the corner snapped like a bunch of firecrackers. In a second the weatherman was at its side, taking down the message. New Orleans, Louisiana. Heavy precipitation. Southwesterly gales. Letter follows. New Orleans, United States Weather Bureau. Poor fellow, muttered the weatherman, who even in his own tense excitement did not forget the troubles of his brother weather prophet in New Orleans. I know just how he feels. I hope he's not married. He glanced at the clock. It was 11.56. In four minutes, summer would be due, and with summer a clearer sky, renewed friendships, and a united family for the weatherman. If it failed him, I dreaded to think of what might happen. It was twenty-nine floors to the pavement below, and I am not a powerful man physically. Together we sat at the table by the thermograph and watched the red line draw mountain ranges along the fifty-degree line. From our seats we could look out over the Statue of Liberty and see the cloud-dimmed glow which told of a censored moon. The weatherman was making nervous little pokes at his collar, as if it had a rough edge that was cutting his neck. Suddenly he gripped the table. Somewhere a clock was beginning to strike twelve. I shut my eyes and waited. Ten. Eleven. Twelve. Look, newspaper man, look, he shrieked and grabbed me by the tie. I opened my eyes and looked at the thermograph. At the last stroke of the clock, the red line had given a little final quaver on the fifty-degree line and then had shot up like a rocket until it struck seventy-two degrees and lay there trembling and heavy like a runner after a race. But it was not at this that the weatherman was pointing. There, out in the murky sky, the stroke of twelve had ripped apart the clouds, and a large milk-fed moon was fairly crashing its way through, laying out a straightaway course of silver cinders across the harbor. And in all parts of the heavens, stars were breaking out like a rash. In two minutes it had become a balmy, languorous night. Summer had come. I turned to the weatherman. He was wiping the palms of his hands on his hips and looking foolishly happy. I said nothing. There was nothing that could be said. Before we left the office, he stopped to write out the prophecy for Wednesday, June 21st, the first day of summer. Fair and warmer, with slowly rising temperature. His hand trembled so as he wrote that he forgot the final E. Then we went out, and he turned towards his home. On Wednesday, June 21st, it rained. Chapter 33 Welcome Home and Shut Up there are a few weeks which bid fair to be pretty trying ones in our national life. 
they will mark the return to the city of thousands and thousands of vacationists after two months or two weeks of feverish recuperation, and there is probably no more obnoxious class of citizen, taken in for end, than the returning vacationist. In the first place, they are all so offensively healthy. They come crashing through the train shed, all brown and peeling, as if their health were something they had acquired through some particular credit to themselves. If it were possible, some of them would wear their sunburned noses on their watch chains, like Phi Beta Kappa keys. They have got so used to going about all summer in bathing suits and shirts open at the neck, that they look like professional wrestlers in stiff collars, and seem to be on the point of bursting out at any minute. And they always make a great deal of noise getting off the train. "'Where's Bessie?' they scream. "'Ned, where's Bessie? Have you got the thermos bottles? Well, here's the old station, just as it was when we left it. <laughs> "'Wallace, you simply must carry your pail and shovel. Mama can't carry everything, you know. Mama told you that if you wanted to bring your pail and shovel home, you would have to carry it yourself. Don't you remember Mama told you, Wallace? Wallace, listen! Edna, have you got Bessie? Harry's gone after the trunks.' At least he said that was where he was going. Look, there's the Dexter building looking just the same, big as life and twice as natural. I know, Wallace, Mama's just as hot as you are. But you don't hear Mama crying, do you? I wonder where Bert is. He said he'd be down to meet her, sure. Here, give me that cape, Lillian. You're dragging it all over the ground. Here's Bert. Woohoo, Bert! Here we are. Spencer, there's Daddy. Woohoo, Daddy! "'Junior, wipe that gum off your shoe this minute. "'Where's Bessie?' "'And so they go all the way out into the street "'and the cab and home. "'Millions of them. "'It's terrible. "'And when they get home, things are just about as bad, "'except there aren't so many people to see them. "'At the sight of eight Sunday and sixty-two daily papers strewn over the front porch and lawn, there are loud screams of imprecation at Daddy for having forgotten to order them stopped. Daddy insists that he did order them stopped, and that it is that damn fool boy. "'I guess you weren't home much during July,' says Mama bitterly, "'or you would have noticed that something was wrong.' Daddy didn't join the family until August." "'There were no papers delivered during July,' said Steady very firmly and quietly. "'At least I didn't see any, stepping on one, dated July 19th. "'The inside of the house resembles some place you might bet a man a hundred dollars he daren't spend the night in. "'Dead men's feet seem to be protruding from behind sofas, "'and there is a damp smell as if the rooms had been closed pending the arrival of the coroner.' "'Junior runs upstairs to see if his switching engine is where he left it, "'and comes falling down the stairs, panting with terror, "'announcing that there is something in the guest room. "'At that moment there is a sound of someone leaving the house by the back door. "'Daddy is elected, by popular vote, to go upstairs and see what has happened, "'although he insists that he has to wait downstairs, "'as the man with the trunks will be there at any minute.' After five minutes of cagey maneuvering around the hall outside the guest-room door, he returns looking for Junior, saying that was simply a pile of things left on the bed covered with a sheet. <laughs> then comes the unpacking. It has been estimated that in the trunks of returning vacationists, 
Taking this section of the country as a whole, the following articles will be pulled out during the next few weeks. Sneakers, full of sand. Bathing suits, still damp from one last swim. Dead tennis balls. Last month's magazines, bought for reading in the grove. Shells and pretty stones picked up on the beach for decoration purposes, for which there has suddenly become no use at all. Horseshoe crabs salvaged by the children who refuse to leave them behind. Lace scarfs and shawls bought from itinerant Armenians. Remnants of tubes formerly containing sunburn ointment, half-filled bottles of citronella, and white shoe dressing. White flannel trousers ready for the cleaners. Snapshots showing Ed and Molly on the beach in their bathing suits. Snapshots which show nothing at all. Faded flowers, dance cards, and assorted sentimental objects calculated to bring up tender memories of summer evenings. Uncompleted knit sweaters. Then begins the tour of the neighborhood, comparing summer vacation experiences. To each returning vacationist, it seems as if everyone in town must be interested in what he or she did during the summer. They stop perfect strangers on the street and say, Well, a week ago today at this time, we were all walking up to the post office for the mail. Right out in front of the post office were the fish houses, and you ought to have seen Billy one night leading a lobster home on a string. <laughs> that was the night we all went swimming by moonlight. Yeah, says a stranger, and pushes his way past. Then two people get together who have been to different places. Neither wants to hear about the other's summer, and neither does. Both talk at once and pull snapshots out of their pockets. Here's where we used to take our lunch. That's nothing. Steve had a friend up the lake who had a launch, and every day there was something doing over at the casino. And you ought to have seen Miriam. She was a sight. <laughs> Pretty soon they come to blows, trying to make each other listen. The only trouble is they never quite kill each other. If only one could be killed, it would be a great help. The next ban on immigration should be on returning vacationists. Have government officials stationed in each city and keep everyone out who won't give a bond to shut up and go right to work. Chapter 34 Animal Stories 1. How Georgie Dog Gets the Rubbers on the Guest Room Bed Old Mother Nature gathered all her little pupils about her for the daily lesson in how the animals do the things they do. Every day Waldo Lizard, Edna Elephant, and Lawrence Walrus came to Mother Nature's school and there they learned all about the useless feats performed by their brother and sister animals. Today, says Mother Nature, we shall find out how it is that Georgie Dog manages to get the muddy rubbers from the hall closet up the stairs and on to the nice white bedspread in the guest room. You must be sure to listen carefully and pay strict attention to what Georgie Dog says. Only don't take too much of it seriously, for Georgie is an awful liar. 
and sure enough in came georgie dog wagging his entire torso in a paroxysm of camaraderie although everyone knew that he had no use for waldo lizard tell us georgie says mother nature how do you do your clever work of rubber dragging we would like so much to know wouldn't we children no mother nature came the instant response from the children so georgie dog began well i'll tell you it's this way he said snapping at a fly you you have to be very nifty about it first of all i lie by the door of the hall closet until i see a nice pair of muddy rubbers kicked into it how muddy ought they to be asked edna elephant although little enough use she would have for the information i am glad you asked that question replied georgie personally i like to have mud on them about the consistency of gurry that is not too wet because then it will all drip off on the way upstairs and not so dry that it scrapes off on the carpet for we must save it all for the bedspread you know as soon as the rubbers are safely in the hall closet i make a great deal of to-do about going into the other room in order to give the impression that there is nothing interesting enough in the hall to keep me there a good loud yawn helps to disarm any suspicion of undue excitement i sometimes even chew a bit of fringe on the sofa and take a scolding for it anything to draw attention from the rubbers then when every one is at dinner i sneak out and drag them forth and how do you manage to take them both at once piped up lawrence walrus i am glad that you asked that question said georgie because i was trying to avoid it you can never guess what the answer is it is very difficult to take two at a time so we usually have to take one and then go back and get the other i had a cousin once who knew a grip which could be worked on the backs of overshoes by means of which he could drag two at a time but he was an exceptionally fine dragger he once took a pair of rubber boots from the barn into the front room where a wedding was taking place and put them on the bride's train of course not one dog in a million could hope to do that once upstairs it is quite easy getting them into the guest room unless the door happens to be shut then what do you think i do i go around through the bathroom window onto the roof and walk around to the sleeping porch and climb down into the guest room that way it is a lot of trouble but i think that you will agree with me that the results are worth it climbing up on the bed with the rubbers in my mouth is difficult but it doesn't make any difference if some of the mud comes off on the side of the bedspread in fact it all helps in the final effect i usually try to smear them around when i get them at last on the spread and if i can leave one of them on the pillow i feel it's a pretty fine little old world after all this done i am off and georgie dog suddenly disappeared in official pursuit of an automobile going eighty-five miles an hour so now said mother nature to her little pupils we have heard all about georgie dog's work Tomorrow 
we may listen to Lillian Mosquito tell how she makes her voice carry across a room. Animal Stories 2 How Lillian Mosquito Projects Her Voice All the children came crowding around Mother Nature one cold, raw afternoon in summer, crying in unison, Oh, Mother Nature, you promised us that you would tell us how Lillian Mosquito projects her voice. You promised that you would tell us how Lillian Mosquito projects her voice. So I did, so I did, says Mother Nature, laying down an oak, the leaves of which she was tipping with scarlet for the fall trade. And so I will, so I will. At which Waldo Lizard, Edna Elephant, and Lawrence Walrus jumped with imitation joy, for they had hoped to have the afternoon off. Mother Nature led them across the fields to the piazza of a clubhouse, on which there was an exposed ankle belonging to one of the members. There, as she had expected, they found Lillian Mosquito having tea. Lillian, called Mother Nature, come off a minute. I have some little friends here who would like to know how it is that you manage to hum in such a manner as to give the impression of being just outside the ear of a person in bed, when actually you are across the room. Will you kindly repeat the question, says Lillian, flying over to the railing. We want to know, said Mother Nature, how it is that very often, when you have been fairly caught, it turns out that you have escaped without injury. I would prefer to answer the question as it was first put, said Lillian. So Waldo Lizard, Edna Elephant, and Lawrence Walrus, seeing that there was no way out, cried, Yes, yes, Lillian, do tell us. First of all, you must know, began Lillian Mosquito, that my chief duty is to annoy. Whatever else I do, however many bites I total in the course of the evening, I do not consider that I have made good unless I have caused a great deal of annoyance while doing it. A bite, quietly executed and not discovered by the victim until morning, does me no good. It is my duty and my pleasure to play with him before biting, as you have often heard a cat plays with a mouse, tormenting him with apprehension and making him struggle to defend himself. If I am using too long words for you, please stop me. Stop! cried Waldo Lizard, reaching for his hat, with the idea of possibly getting to the ballpark by the fifth inning. But he was prevented from leaving by kindly old Mother Nature, who stepped on him with her kindly old heel, and Lillian Mosquito continued. I must therefore, you see, be able to use my little voice with great skill. Of course, the first thing to do is to make my victim think that I am nearer to him than I really am. To do this, I sit quite still, let us say, on the footboard of the bed, and beginning to hum in a very, very low tone of voice, increase the volume and raise the pitch gradually, thereby giving the effect of approaching the pillow. The man in bed thinks that he hears me coming toward his head, and I can often see him waiting with the clenched teeth until he thinks that I am near enough to swat. Sometimes I strike a quick little grace note, as if I were right above him and about to make a landing. It is great fun at such times to see him suddenly strike himself over the ear. 
they always think that I am right at their ear, and then feel carefully between his fingertips to see if he has caught me. Then, too, there is always the pleasure of thinking that perhaps he has hurt himself quite badly by the blow. I have often known victims of mine to deafen themselves permanently by jarring their eardrums in their wild attempts to catch me. "'What fun! What fun!' cried Edna Elephant. "'I must try it myself, just as soon as I get home. "'It is often a good plan to make believe that you have been caught after one of the swats,' "'continued Lillian Mosquito, and to keep quiet for a while. "'It makes him cocky. "'He thinks that he has demonstrated the superiority of man over the rest of the animals. "'Then he rolls over and starts to sleep.' This is the time to begin work on him again. After he has slapped himself all over the face and head, and after he has put on the light and made a search of the room, and then gone back to bed to think up some new words, that is the time when I usually bring the climax about. Gradually approaching him from the right, I hum loudly in his ear, then suddenly becoming quiet, I fly silently and quickly around to his neck. Just as he hits himself on the ear, I bite his neck and fly away. And voila, there you are. How true that is, said Mother Nature. Voila, there we are. Come, children, let us go now, for we must be up bright and early tomorrow to learn how Lois Hen scratches up the beets and Swiss chard in the gentlemen's gardens. Chapter 35 The Tariff Unmasked Let us get this tariff thing cleared up once and for all. An explanation is due to the American people, and obviously this is the place to make it. Viewing the whole thing schedule by schedule, we find it indefensible. In Schedule A alone, the list of necessities on which the tax is to be raised includes Persian berries, extract of nutgalls, and isinglass. Take isinglass alone. With prices shooting up in this market, what is to become of our picture postcards? Where once for a nickel you could get a picture of the Woolworth building ablaze with lights with the sun setting and the moon rising in the background... Under the proposed tariff, it will easily set you back 15 cents. This is all very well for the rich who can get their picture postcards at wholesale, but how are the poor to get their art? The only justifiable increase in this schedule is on blues in pulp, dried, etc. If this will serve to reduce the amount of those lonesome, onesome, wonesome blues, and I've got the left all alone in the magazine reading room of the public library blues, with which our popular song market has been flooded for the past five years, we could almost bring ourselves to vote for the entire tariff bill as it stands. Schedule B. Here we find a tremendous increase in the tax on grindstones. Householders and travelers in general do not appreciate what this means. It means that next year, when you are returning from Europe, you will have to pay a duty on those Dutch grindstones that you always bring back to the cousins, a duty which will make the importation of more than three prohibitive. This will lead to an orgy of grindstone smuggling, making it necessary for hitherto respectable people to become lawbreakers by concealing grindstones about their clothing and in the trays of their trunks. 
think this over. Schedule C. Right at the start of this list, we find charcoal bars being boosted. Have our children no rights? What is a train ride with children without Hershey's charcoal bars? Or gypsum? What is more picturesque on a ride through the countryside than a band of gypsum encamped by the road with their bright colors and gay tambourine playing? Are these simple folks to be kept out of this country simply because a Republican tariff insists on raising the tax on gypsum? Schedule D. A way to evade the injustice of this schedule is in the matter of marble slabs. Marble slabs rubbed are going to cost more to import than marble slabs unrubbed. What we are planning to do in this office is to get in a quantity of unrubbed marble slabs and then rub them ourselves. A coarse dry towel is very good for rubbing, they say. Any further discussion of the details of this iniquitous tariff would only enrage us to the point of incoherence. Perhaps a short list of some of the things you will have to do without under the new arrangement will serve to enrage you also. Senegal gum, buchu leaves, lava tips for burners, magic lantern strips, spielegeilisen nut washers, butcher's skewers, and gun wads. Now, write to your congressman. This concludes Part 7 of Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley. Read by Ted DeLorme for LibriVox. This book will continue on future files.